welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Fat Fudge. If you've never tried it, this is essentially coffee meets fudge meets energy bomb, and it's delicious. Invented by my friend Mary Shinuda, this on-the-go food is nutrient-dense and delicious. I often travel with a few of these in my suitcase for a quick breakfast or a meal if there aren't good food options whenever I'm traveling. Wellness Mama listeners can get a discount 20% off with the code WellnessMama, all one word, WellnessMama at wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash fat fudge. That's P-H-A-T dash F-U-D-G-E. So fat dash fudge. This podcast is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. My kitchen is always stocked with their coffee mushroom blends, their matcha mix, and their straight mushroom drinks. Four Sigmatic has figured out how to get the benefits of mushrooms like chaga, lion's mane, cordyceps, and reishi into delicious instant drinks. My current favorite is their their adaptogen coffee blend that has Tulsi and astragalus, but I love all of their products. They have options with or without caffeine, so if you're not a caffeine person, you can find products that you'll love. Um, And I find that even their coffee blends that do contain caffeine have less than a normal cup of coffee, but don't let this fool you. I have found I get so much more focus and mental clarity from these mushroom blends than I do from regular coffee and without the jitters. The addition of the mushrooms, which are considered nootropics, meaning that they are good for the brain, makes these superfood blends more effective and much healthier than just regular old coffee. I love them with a dash of macadamia milk personally. I also love that many of their drink mixes are instant and packaged into individual servings, so they're perfect for travel or on the go. If you're listening to this, then you can get a special offer just for listeners of this podcast by going to wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash F-O-U-R dash S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C. That's wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash four dash sigmatic. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Moms Podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and I am here today to talk about biological medicine and many aspects of that with Dr. Jeff Drobot, who is one of the founders and medical directors of the American Center for Biological Medicine in Scottsdale, Arizona. It is the largest and most comprehensive in North America and a place that I want to go on vacation personally. It looks awesome. Um, Jeff has spent the last 20 years learning from the best and seeking out cutting-edge science and technology to assess and amplify human biology and physiology. He works closely with amateur and professional athletes, as well as organizations and companies interested in peak performance and longevity. He's considered a leading authority in the world in biological medicine, as well as in chronic and autoimmune conditions and treatments, detoxification, hormonal imbalance and correction, and even customized sports medicine and nutrition. So obviously, he's a wealth of knowledge. And Dr. Drobot, welcome, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, like I said, I think this is going to be an information-packed episode because your knowledge is so vast, but I think to start, um, it would be helpful if you could explain the difference between biological medicine and functional medicine, because I feel like those terms can sometimes get interchanged, and there's not a lot of knowledge about the differences. Right. So there's there's systems of medicine, and every medicine or every medical system is based on some kind of premise. And, and how it all started was we said allopathic medicine, and they're all supposed to be based on anatomy and physiology, and then we kind of got into some biochemistry and then pharmacology in the end. So we kind of grouped these systems, or these, we'll say, families of medicine, and we said here's what allopathic medicine and, and then functional medicine. Biological medicine was kind of playing around in Europe for a long period of time. Of course, everybody knows Chinese medicine, too, uh, that has its origins in Asia. And so we brought functional medicine as a way to do allopathic medicine, but also do mostly biochemistry. And I think that 
that was the big difference between what functional medicine and biological medicine is, is functional medicine is a lot of great stuff, um, but mostly lab tests based on biochemistry. And biological medicine has all of that. So it does a lot of the functional medicine stuff or has that incorporated, but also incorporates physics in it. So there's homeopathy. There's a bunch of machinery and technology that's not just based on lab work and nutritional supplementation. There's a lot of machinery that's involved in biological medicine. And I think another one of the big tenets of biological medicine ends up being um, from top down. And that was one of the things that kind of, I say, attracted me to it was it also had the dentistry component in that, or it took the whole head into effect. Normally in medicine, we go neck down. That's how we kind of uh, look at it, and we leave the rest for dentists and neurologists. Uh, and biological medicine said, hey, every single one of these teeth is connected to an acupuncture meridian, which is basically its own organ. So what you put in your mouth, uh, whether it's dental materials or root canals, uh, actually has an impact on the rest of the body. And so that kind of was interesting to me as I was going through uh, looking at some of the assessments, and they would show you that, you know, and we knew back from the old days that 80% of chronic infections ended up in the head. Um, we just didn't address it in medicine. And so uh, they're just, that's, I guess that would be the biggest differentiation between biological medicine and functional medicine is the physics and the fact that we do, we do look at dentistry a lot in biological medicine, but functional medicine is wonderful. And uh, it does incorporate a whole bunch of things that, of course, are direly needed in today's chronic disease infested world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe more people are familiar with or have at least heard the term biological dentistry. So that's a good segue into biological medicine. Um, but you mentioned chronic disease a couple times. And I think a lot of listeners p potentially have that or have struggled with that. I personally have Hashimoto's and that's been my journey. But I'd love to get your take on why do you think we are seeing such a rise in chronic disease in today's times? Well, I think that the environment has gotten chronically worse um, than it used to be Evolution is kind of slow for humans in the sense that we don't have you – know, everything is supposed to be set and we're supposed to go through this process of evolution where there's something that happens in the environment. We get a couple generations to adapt to that environment and we just in the industrial revolution just, just experimented and put a whole bunch of man-made chemicals into a biological system that was not used to it, did not know about it and – confused a lot of the uh, biological processes that normally occur in the body. So we could probably blame 80, 90 percent of cancers definitely on the environment. We could probably blame, geez, 98 percent of autoimmune disease on the environment. And I mean, chronic disease kind of is a is a variation of those, too. It's like how long can the body do its normal natural processes before something kind of preoccupies it or something interferes with it? And it has to do something different to try to get rid of something. The problem is. We don't really have, we'll say, the enzyme systems and all the machinery to get rid of mercury when it's just leaking in our mouth or to get rid of plastic. So it's not that everything is terrible and we're doomed. It's just things become busy. And in the good old days, it was like you just had to worry about a piece of broccoli. And now you've got to worry about 15 different chemicals that we've kind of made that stay in connective tissue for a long time and just constantly occupy an immune system that used to be able to just deal with things daily. And now these things have half-lives of like 100 years. So they don't get out, for example, like mercury and lead and cadmium. Um, they don't get out unless we go and chelate them out. So they can just sit there forever. And we bioaccumulate these things. And we know that it's not like one equals one. It's like you've got a couple metals and then that's like one plus one equals 10. So then our bodies are constantly having to deal with exogenous things. And that leaves some of the endogenous products 
um, to be left on the shelf and we just never get around to it. That makes sense. What are some of the conditions you guys are seeing the most in your clinic right now? Because I know from the stats, pretty much all of these conditions are on the rise. So I'm sure you're seeing all of them. But are there any trends you're seeing as far as conditions that, that appear more often? Well, lots of endocrine disruptors, Hashimoto, so lots of autoimmune disease, infertility, of course, is massive. Um, obesity, just again from endocrine, endocrine disruptors, is uh, awful. And our clinic kind of is a specialty fly-in clinic, so I'm usually everybody's 300 doctors. So I get to see the, the most complicated of the complicated just because we might have more tools and more tests that give us more information, and we have a whole bunch of therapies. But I definitely, in my last 10 years, you see a ton of autoimmune disease um, starting to come up, and you see a ton of endocrine disruptors, both in males and in females, um, which are affecting thyroids and anabolic hormones. Um, but those are, those are sensitive glands. Immune systems, neurological conditions are starting to come back up, so we see lots of Alzheimer's. But the nervous system is, is pretty slow, so things can accumulate in that for a long period of time. The trouble with the nervous system is it's also slow to treat. So by the time it kind of sets in, it's, it's harder to treat than autoimmune diseases, which actually, you know, when you, when you kind of learn what's causing it and how to deal with it, isn't, isn't overly impossible to treat. It just is, it's a process. Yeah, I would love to delve into that more because, um, I, like I said, I think that's a huge pain point for a lot of people who are listening. And I think you guys have a re- really unique approach that seems to be really successful. So um, kind of let's start at the beginning. If someone comes in to meet with you, what are some of the di- diagnostic procedures and tests that you take them through? So we still like to see, I like to see all the allopathic labs. So blood work is still important. I just don't think we do comprehensive enough blood work. And we have to remember that blood work is only one time a day. Um, at one period of the month. So I like to see comprehensive blood work. So all the CBCs, CAM panels, I like to see all the endocrine hormones, free T3s, all the thyroid panels and all the inflammatory markers with some viral titers. And then we normally do stool cultures because 80% of the immune system ends up in the digestive tract, micronutrient panels, and 24-hour hormone assessments. That's usually what we get when they come in. And then inside our clinic, we have three different kinds of heart rate variability. We have EEG brain neural scans that we do. Um, we do a whole bunch of assessments on the lymphatic system and connective tissues, full body thermographies. So we get to get, I like to look under the hood and I like to have the most tools to look under the hood because I'm not, I'm just looking for where the holes in the bucket are. And, you know, I used to try to get into the balancing all the biochemistry and one, one, one. And by the time they were done, they're on 150 supplements. Uh, and it works sometimes, but Supplements aren't magic beans either. So by the time somebody is is pretty in deep in chronic disease, they can't absorb a lot of things and they can't detox a lot of things, which is why I kind of went to technology and said maybe there's faster, better ways to do it. But the assessment is is really looking and seeing what's working, what isn't working, and what organ system is the weakest out of those. Because you're for example, your Hashimoto's will call that an immune system condition, but it's also an endocrine system condition. It's also a digestive condition. So we have to look at every single one of those systems and we find out which systems are the weakest. And then I'm lazy. So I'll just go with the system that's the weakest and I'll get the most bang for the buck. Gotcha. So you've mentioned technology a couple of times. And I know that like me, you're a big fan of using technology to improve health when possible. So I'd love to hear some of the examples of how you are doing this at office. So normally when somebody will just take chronic disease, for example. So Again, I come from a long lineage. My grade five science fair project was on color lights and muscle testing. So like my, my mom was a nursing professor and this is how we kind of were raised. 
um, to deal with supplementation and to kind of look at these, you know, innovative technologies that would come up. And so I just started incorporating when I was in medical school um, in Portland, it was lovely because Portland is kind of like a hub of alternative medicine. So every weekend somebody would come in um, like a circus touting their way. So you get a, you get a pretty good look at technology. And I went over to Europe a ton of times and went over to Germany and, and, and different places and kind of found the best that would work in North America and brought it back. And so at the at the base, we're just trying to get energy in a cell That's and, and stuff away from connective tissue. If I could say two things about chronic disease, it's get the stuff out and start to get mitochondria to produce energy. However you want to do that, if you accomplish those two things, then biology kind of will take care of itself. So in the clinic, we do colonics and we do all that, but we also do tons of high-altitude oxygen training. Um, we have lasers. We do tons of pulse electromagnetic fields because we're just trying to get energy produced in the cell. So we need oxygen, thyroid hormone, um, glucose, and some electrons. So the oxygen will do blood ozone therapy or high-altitude oxygen therapies. Um, for the electrons, we'll do tons of the pulse electromagnetic therapies, about three or four different kinds. And then to get the stuff out, we end up doing tons of using lymphatic machines. So we use ST8s, lymph stars, and uh, colonic hydrotherapy and lots of visceral manipulation. So, I mean, every there's probably 25 different machines that we end up using, but they all get based on what is the biggest need as far as what happens with the assessment. So it's, it's individualized medicine. Um, at its best because we're finding out what doesn't work and we're giving the patient lots of information because you don't want to be a patient. I always say you want to be a participant in your health before you become a patient because a patient by that time there's things that you have to do and you want to know just things that you should do so that you never become a patient. And I think um, that's where technology is absolutely wonderful these days is even though that it's not that ingrained in medicine yet, uh, you can find out a lot of information 10, 15 years before you get pathology, and you can certainly get performance um, a lot better when you know how your cells and how your nutrient levels are, are where they are today. Instead of just going on diets and practicing and taking, like I said, lots of supplements, you kind of want to know what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're so right. I think that's um, that's where the differentiation is so important because the conventional medicine in the US, it has its many strengths, certainly. And like I've always said, if I was going to be, for instance, if I was in a car accident and needed immediate trauma care, we are in an amazing place for that. And if you know you break a bone, we're in a great place for that in the US, but they haven't quite adapted to a chronic disease model. And so I love that you guys are looking at it early. And I also always love to say that no matter who we're hiring, doctors especially, they're just a consultant in our health. And I love that the biological model seems to really like encourage people to take autonomy for their own health and to make changes and to be a complete partner in that process rather than just kind of outsourcing and expecting to like the doctor to say, just do this, take this, and that's all. Um, you guys really do take a much more comprehensive approach, which I love. And you mentioned the uh, PEMF, I believe, and what you were just speaking about. And I'd love if you could delve into that because that has been um, an area of research for me in the last couple of months. I've been fascinated by the ideas behind it and the different types available. So if you could, for my own knowledge, just kind of go through that, I would love that. Yeah, so there's two. I mean, at the end of the day, we're just trying to produce electricity, right? We all know that if we have lots of electricity, then, and we get the cell membrane potential a certain amount, I mean, it functions pretty well. So things like vitamins are just catalysts to get that electricity or those electrons to be produced. So the better option is to basically use battery chargers. So we know that we can take a tissue that's inflamed or we can take a tissue that's degenerated and it doesn't have the same cell potential. Um, as normal cells. For example, cancer cells 
have a cell potential of negative 40 millivolts, which is all kind of weird talk. But normal cells have negative 70 millivolts, so they have a lot more electrons in the system. And that's where you kind of heard the craze of alkaline diets. We're going to do all this alkalization. And alkalinity is just basically adding electrons to something. You're just trying to go ahead and put all of these little electrons in there because they charge batteries. That's why everybody knows about an alkaline battery. And so they use foods with high mineral content with lots of electrons, and that would charge the battery up. Well, a long time ago, physics already figured that out and said, if I use dilute pulsed fields, um, I can use them because the cells are like little battery chargers. I can go ahead and use frequencies and voltage, and I can go and increase the voltage in the cell membrane number one, and then frequencies um, also basically tell the cell what to do. So things like our Earth with say Schumann frequencies are 7.8 hertz. That's why things like electromagnetic fields and stuff like that are so disruptive because they're so noisy for our cells so noisy for the nervous system that we can't get cells to communicate with each other because there's all this screaming in the background. Plus, when we're our body's dealing with hertz and we're dealing with gigahertz, as far as um, technology is concerned, it's a big drain on our battery. So the different kinds of pulse electromagnetic field therapies, some are passive, which means you just lay down and there's a current that you can't even feel, almost like earthing. You know that movement where you just kind of lay on dirt and the Earth's magnetic field of like 9.8 hertz just kind of fills your body and it tells your body um, what to do again. That's why when people go camping, they come back so refreshed because their body has kind of had that little pulse that it's educated itself on what to do again. It's kind of recalibrated its system. And we haven't had a lot of noise from the, uh, or say electrical noise that has kind of exhausted us. So the passive mats, you lay there, you set a frequency and the frequency basically will do different things. Some are anti-inflammatory. Some deal with specific organs in the body, but some, we use some of those. And then the active pulse electromagnetic fields give off a charge, which is kind of similar to a Tesla coil. And so they actually produce electrons. And it's it's kind of, it's an interesting therapy to feel because it, it feels a little bit like you're on the cattle fence, but it discharges um, actual volts. So you take a tissue that needs some electricity and you put volts in it and you pretty much just bypassed all the need for supplementation. And the body will hold those volts for a certain period of time. So for example, if somebody comes to the clinic and they have some kind of chronic disease, whatever we wanna say, or they're just fatigued or chronic fatigue, um, we'll do a lot of electrical work because at the end of the day, when we go ahead and make their cell membrane potential normal, and when they have electricity, they just feel better. And then livers work and kidneys work, and sure we might need to look at some hormones, but you make enough cells or you turn enough lights on in the body and and charge happens again. So pulse electromagnetic field therapy is a tremendously beneficial thing for anybody to do. Um, the technology just hasn't come to the place yet where we can really have it that it's that affordable. Yeah, I'm hopeful that it will be in future years. But like I said, it's been an area of fascination for me recently. I read the book, The Body Electric, which really kind of delves into, and I don't know that many people realize um, we are very much electrical beings. There's so much going on in the body on that level. Um, and so I think it's fascinating to hear you and like the perspective of biological medicine addressing like that on the kind of physics level versus also chemistry and biology and how they all interact together and how that's important for the whole picture. Is there a difference in effectiveness between the active and the passive that you mentioned? Um, or what would be some cases when you would use one versus the other? So the active, so for all the pro athletes, I mean, they love those active therapies because it's, it's a definite regeneration or rep, we'll say replenishment of the electrons that you might have lost. The passive 
the passive is kind of nice because it, it's like microcurrent. You know, microcurrent will increase ATP, which is like energy. It'll increase it like a thousand times. You just don't feel it. But it's this, this passive way to kind of tell the body to produce something. And active PEMF just goes ahead and does it. Now, the thing with active PEMF is it can cause a detox reaction because it you're pulsing charge through the body and it's moving lymphatics that never used to move before. It's moving tissue that never had charge before. So it's kind of turning some lights on, but it's pushing some stuff out first. Um, so that's why we use a combination. If everybody just did just dilute pulse electromagnetic field therapy, which I think you know, we're creating a little device, for example, because the technology has just come so around so wonderfully that you can create in a tiny little space um, where it doesn't have to be these big mats that produce all this stuff and it doesn't have to be $8,000. It can be 300 bucks. It just takes a little while in technology to produce it. So anybody that's sensitive, you kind of use passive post-electromagnetic field therapy first. And then once you get into a clinical setting or once you get into a place um, where you can tolerate having the charge, kind of like when you have chronic disease, you probably can't go ahead and do vigorous exercise yet, even though everybody would say, hey, once you go for a jog around the block, you're like, hey, that's probably going to put me in bed for five days. So there's different um, different modalities just depending on what the tolerance that you have for that particular therapy, because it's not the therapy we're looking for. It's really what's your response to the therapy? Can you respond to that wonderful therapy? And if you can't, then even though the therapy might have been beneficial, um, your body just wasn't ready to respond to that. Got it. Okay. That makes perfect sense. And I'm hopeful like you, that's amazing actually, keep me in the loop on the less expensive option because that's definitely something I can share with my listeners when you get to that point. Um, I'm hopeful that as we learn more about this, um, that these are things we can also all incorporate just into normal everyday life because it's easy to just see the negatives in technology. But if we incorporated these things, just like we do a Wi-Fi router into a house, for instance, that we were all getting these in a passive way, I feel like we could really move the needle in some interesting ways as we learn more and more um, about these things. And another thing I know that I saw on your website was ozone therapy. And that's one I've researched a little bit as well. But I'd love if you could delve into what ozone therapy is and when it's indicated for use. So ozone therapy, we do something called major autohemotherapy here, which is taking the blood out, ozonating it, and putting it back in the body. So ozone therapy is O3, and everybody knows oxygen is O2. So what it does do is it kind of floods the body with an extra um, oxygen radical. And so it's viciously effective to kill off chronic viral infections, so chronic fatigue, um, and oxygenates tissues. And it also does a pretty good job of detoxing. It's my favorite therapy to personally get because I get the most bang for my buck out of ozone therapy because it just makes you feel good. It oxygenates tissues. Um, I also like high altitude therapies, which is um, a nice, that's a nice way to do it. We used to do it with hyperbaric oxygen, as you know, but you have to sit in there for an hour and it's 30 treatments. So it was, um, it's a little slower, but ozone, like I said, for chronic infections, chronic disease uh, is one of the best things for cancer. It's one of the best things you used to do. And in other, in other parts of the world, because it's so cheap, it's readily done for chronic infections, and it's it's absolutely wonderful. The trouble is, like I said, it's cheap, and you don't have to do it that much, so it's not such an annuity for the medical system. So we don't just don't incorporate it here. Um, but if if anybody has a cold or flu, or anybody has chronic viral infections, then to, to not do ozone um, is 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 a real shame. I just think it's one of the best therapies that probably we've ever had available. And now in North America, we're starting to do 10-pass ozone, which is taking a lot more blood 
oxygenating a lot more blood. And when it's in the tissues, that oxygen hits, um, well, in the bloodstream, it hits the tissues and it, it kills off a lot of viruses or deactivates a lot of viruses. And it also couples with a lot of toxicity to go ahead and, and render it inert so that it can move out of the tissue. Plus, it adds electrons, like I said, to cells. So it's, um, it's one of those rare therapies where it really is hard to do harm with it. And it is really hard not to feel better from it. Yeah, and I feel like it got kind of maybe a bad rap just by association because people kind of associate the word ozone with like climate change and environmental problems. And I think that's an important distinction to realize like it has some really cool biological uses when used correctly, correct? So, I mean, it was, you know, that it's something, it's kind of like when we say it's the old thing with hormones, right? Where it's, we say, well, hormones are bad and it's like, no, synthetic birth control pills are bad. Um, I don't know that biological hormones really did anything except what they were supposed to. It's hard to say reproductive cancers are caused by estrogen. It's like, no, nah, they're probably caused by things that look like estrogen. But, you know, if we just left biological molecules the same and stopped making things that look like bi biological molecules, um, we'd have a lot different effects and we'd have probably a lot better health system than we have now. So um, ozone kind of gets into the same rap where we hear, well, it's ozone and the ozone layer. And if you breathe it, it's a, it's a harmful toxin. And it's like, yeah, that's true. Um, but there's also a lot of biological uses once you put it in there. So where one thing is, it's, it's like food, right? It's a poison for one person. It's a cure for another person. So it just depends the application that you're using it in. Yeah. And how true is that for so many things in life? Um, you guys also talk about IV therapy on your website. And this is another thing I am fascinated with. And I've never been able to like try on the long, long term scale, but I have read about it quite a bit. And for instance, like alternative cancer treatments and using vitamin C intravenously um, and things like that. But I'd love if you could give a more comprehensive picture of what IV therapy is and when it can be used and for what. Sure. So when, again, some of the subpopulations of people that we have after we do the assessment, the first thing to usually break down in chronic disease, or we'll say even in fatigue, is the digestive system. Um, just because it's the largest organ in your body, you know, your small intestine is the size of a tennis court. You've got a thousand different kinds of bacteria in it. You've got six pounds of bacteria in it, and you have about 80% of your immune system that resides in there. So chronic stress or chronic toxicity or immune We'll say battles or food sensitivities, they usually affect that biggest organ first. And because it was the most vital organ, um, your body protects it to the end. And once it runs out of resources for that, that's when you really start to get into the immune compromisation and the fatigue. And, and, and we just, we have to find ways to bypass that digestive tract because putting oral supplementation in is kind of like putting food in. We then have to require that digestive tract to have enough power which again is why we use our electrical machines because that's a massive muscle. Once it runs out of juice, um, I'm not big into patience, so I can't wait for it. So I like to go ahead and charge those muscles back up. But supplementation or oral supplementation has to work through that digestive tract. And when it's compromised, we don't get the same effect off oral supplementation uh, that we should. So we have to bypass that digestive tract, and that's why we go to IV therapy. So IV therapy um, puts those vitamins and minerals, and of course we do ozone too, uh, right directly into the cells so we don't really have to go through the digestive tract. So we deliver a massive amount of the nutrient to the cell, which is where we're all trying to get it. doesn't really do that much in the digestive tract unless it's probiotics. We're trying to get all those vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and all the good stuff to the cell because that's where all the action is. 
Um, or we're trying to get the stuff to the cell so that we can pull some of the other stuff out, like chelation therapy. So to do these kind of things, it's much more effective to bypass that compromised digestive tract, which we all kind of have a compromised digestive tract because nobody rotates their food or everybody's doing paleo this month, ketogenic next month, and vegan the next month. So it changes so much in the uh, integrity of that digestive tract, even though it's the fastest regenerating tissue that we have, it replaces itself every three weeks, um, gets compromised. So IV therapy is a way to bypass that, put all the vitamins and nutrients right into the cell where they need to in a very short period of time and in doses that there's no way we could orally accomplish. That makes perfect sense. And I wasn't actually going to delve too deep into nutrition, but since you said that, I would love to go like a little bit on a tangent with that because that's my background. And I've seen like you all these uh, very polarizing dietary um, kind of groups recently. And it's amazing how dogmatic people can get about paleo or keto or vegan or different things when I like to say for one, we have 95% in common, like most of us agree that you should be eating seasonal plants and choosing local foods, there's a lot in common. Um, but I also have become increasingly more convinced that personalization and diet variation are some of the biggest keys and that maybe we're actually all right, maybe keto works great for some genetic types or gut types or whatever that may be. And it doesn't work for others. And maybe the key to all of it is a very and very personalized approach. But I'm curious, um, what approach do you take? So again, the background in exercise physiology says, and nobody's tested more, before CrossFit became CrossFit, um, I tested a million different, this was when paleo started to come on the rise. And so we test a bunch of uh, people that were just doing exclusive protein diets or proteinization diets. And you'd end up to see over time, between the combination of producing a ton of lactic acid in the tissue and taking in a ton of amino acid in the diet, you clog up the lymphatics in a very short period of time. And of course, with full body thermographies and some of the assessments, we see it. So there's some people where we need to go ahead because your body accumulates things. We all understand this. And so we're like, there's nowhere done. In, and I used to, I used to study these kind of things. And there was nowhere in history where we just eat a buffalo every single day. Like we just didn't do it. And there's no day where we just eat fat all day for the next 12 months organ systems aren't designed to be able to accomplish that so it is you're right we're all having these things in common and it's good to do loading diets and then it's good to do unloading diets at the same time so the perfect diet would be go ahead and figure out what your food sensitivities are because you're just trying to get proteins carbohydrates fats and some vitamins out of this stuff um, and that's supposed to rotate too which again in the old good old days we wouldn't have food sensitivities because we wouldn't have genetically modified foods. And if we were sensitive to tomatoes, they were only there for three months and they were gone for nine. So all the antibodies got out of there in that period of time, we could reload again. So your system and your connective tissue is designed to load up on something and then we're supposed to utilize it. So we're supposed to load up with it in the spring and summer and then we're supposed to recycle it out of the connective tissue in the fall and winter. And so we get into an issue um, with these diets when we just say, I'm going to pound this dogma in here and i'm going to overload because the connective tissue is all we've got so it's funny just recently the you know even medicine said hey there's this massive new organ called the interstitium and it's like well that everybody kind of knew that a long time ago that was called connective tissue which just means there's a lot of space that we store these things in now these days we store a lot of toxicity in those spaces which kind of bathes the cells and suffocates the cells but we also store proteins in them so when we overloaded with protein, we end up suffocating the cells in time. And that's when we flip 
again, to the vegan part of it, which is loading and unloading. So constantly with my chronic disease people, I'm looking and seeing what does their lymphatic system look like? And if I've got to unload it, we all are vegan for a little bit because we do no protein diets, which horrifies some people. But again, if we put a bunch of amino acids in there, I can't get the charge that I want to in the connective tissue because I need negative charges and amino acids are positive charges. So um, we usually deload the chronic disease person for a little bit, and then we have to build hormones and tissues again. So that's when we start adding protein again. So it's very flexible, as you said, and it's all based on where are we at now. But I think the perfect diet would obviously be if we didn't have to go to the grocery store and read books and we just kind of bought what was there, we'd probably do pretty well with it, um, which means there'd be some times where we'd have lots of fruits and lots of glucose and other times where we'd have more protein and other times where we wouldn't have a lot of anything and we utilize what we kind of squirreled away for the winter time. And that way, you know, all the cells and all the tissue kind of loaded at certain points and they unloaded at certain points and all the immune system saw one thing at a certain point and saw something different at a different point. So, uh, diets are, are like religions for people. They get really tied up on it. Um, but the proof of the pudding is, I mean, we have technology that can tell you whether your white blood cells are reacting to a food or not. So if it's the most organic broccoli in the world and you have, you know, either an IgG or immune system reaction to it, then simply it's just not going to do what you want um, out of it. So you need to take it. It's, it's rest cycles and loading cycles. That's how it's always been. And that's pretty much uh, you need to determine where the body's at and you need to go ahead and flux it like that. Yeah, that seems so logical. And I've been kind of experimenting with that the last couple of years, trying to buy pretty much only things that grow in my area at that certain time. And it's been a really interesting experiment. And I've noticed more and more that I tend to start craving the things that are actually seasonal where I live, the more I do it. So for instance, um, right now, everything green is going crazy. And I've been craving like kale and cilantro pesto and things like it's going out of style. Um, but those are the things that are seasonal and designed to be growing right now where we live. Um, it's just fascinating for me to see that. And I, you mentioned, so you mentioned a zero protein diet, or which would be by default a vegan diet, but also that would be a similar to a, um, a fasting mimicking diet. Is that right? Because I know that like Dr. Walter Longo and some people like that use a similar type concept um, and it has amazing clinical research behind it. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on both fasting mimicking and also fasting in general because that's something I've been experimenting with as well lately. So again, for my patient base that we have, fasting is a wonderful thing. And I mean, we used to do a lot more of it. Here's a, here's a problem that I, I found with fasting these days is that when we're looking and again, we have technology so that we can look at patients and, and we cheat a little bit to know electrically where they're at and what they can deal with. Fasting used to be a great thing because you rested the digestive tract and then the rest of the cells kind of got going and they got into that detoxification phase. Um, and that used to be, I mean, it's been done for, for as long as humans have been around. But now with, with some of the more, we'll say, chemically sensitive people and some of the more, um, we'll say, some of the, the way that we design chemicals, sometimes you don't want that all out at the same time. Sometimes we don't need to flood, take everything off the shelf. Um, in Chinese medicine, that's called shaking the tiger's tail while they're in the cage. Um, sometimes you just don't want to do that. There has to be something that's a little bit more um, gentle. And that's why I said there has to be some calorie coming in. A lot of people will do um, different diets or modified fasting, which is great because you rest the system. We all know caloric restriction increase, increased longevity, but we're not playing with the same game anymore. We're saying if we look at that connective tissue, 
and we stop something that's coming in, normally we increase what's going out. We really need that 72 hours before we start to see that connective tissue start dumping. So I always like to fuel the system a little bit. I know intermittent fasting is kind of like that paleo thing now. Everybody's saying, well, I'm just going to do intermittent fasting. But it's, a, it's an interesting thing when you're looking at cortisol levels and endocrinology to say, if you're going to do a 12-hour fast, um, you should probably do that 12. You should probably eat breakfast and then do the 12-hour fast after that. But nobody does it that way because the digestive tract, like the thyroid, for example, is the highest metabolically at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon because that's when cortisol is the highest in the morning. So everybody kind of does this intermittent fast where we fast from dinner to the next lunch. And it's like, ah, you know, that's that's putting too much stress hormone and too much of the sympathetic nervous system in play at the time. And unless the person's going to do that also with their lifestyle and not work in the morning, because that would be a true intermittent fast, right? Fasting used to mean resting. And then all of a sudden we said, well, fasting just means not eating. And so if you look at the old way the literature said, it was like, if you're going to fast, you stay home, you rest, and you let your biological processes do what they're supposed to without having to compete with food. And so I think we kind of, we messed that up in North America a little bit where we're just like, ah, just not going to eat. It's like, well, you're going to go to work or even worse, you're going to work out. A lot of people like now to just to work out while they do intermittent fasting because they're like, I lose a lot of weight. It's because you just released a lot of stress hormone. And so you're going to pay for that though in the next, you know, one to three years when you kind of burn that hormone out. So I like fasting. I just like fasting the way that fasting was meant to be done, which is like rest everything. You know, stay at home, don't eat, or you can do the old master cleanse, which is called the Nira cleanse nowadays, where you have a little bit of fuel coming in. So you're fueling some of the liver and kidneys so that they can actually get some more energy so that they can filter some of this nastiness that we're just re really getting out of our connective tissue. So I think fasting and resting, we need to revisit that that logic and say, you know, if I'm just not going to eat, but I'm going to do everything else in my life, probably hormonally, I'm putting myself in a very interesting situation. That makes perfect sense. And I have never felt great on intermittent fasting. And that's probably why. Um, although I have experimented with um, what you mentioned, where you actually need that 72 hours for the body to actually really start seeing changes. I've experimented with more like five to seven day water fast under the guidance of a doctor and seen really cool lab changes from that. Um, obviously watching thyroid hormones very carefully. Um, but that was interesting to hear you say that because I know that there is some research on the autophagy and um, like stem cell production and things that ramp up on a longer water fast. But I think what you said is so key. That's not a time you should be running a marathon or even working out. Um, and those for me are times when I just um, take a few days off and get to relax and just read books in bed with my kids. Because like you said, there's a lot going on even when you're not eating and especially probably when you're not eating. Yeah, you were supposed to just lay down, put a bunch of blankets and, less, and rest by the fire so you increase your metabolic rate and you had a fever. You know, and then you'd wake up and you'd come, you'd kind of come out of it and you'd feel like, oh, there was a nice catharsis there. And intermittent fasting or fasting as we've do, done it today, that's just kind of another stress that you're putting on the body. And we're just not, we're not, we're not validating the process that is supposed to be going on. We're just saying, I'm not going to put calorie in there. So I'm going to get this extra effect off of it. But it's like, ooh, that's the same thing that we kind of see with like marathon training back in the day when you never used to rest. It's like, yeah, it really looks good on paper. You're really tracking a lot of miles down. And then when you run out of cartilage, it's like, well, that didn't look so good. You know, so there was there was things that you were supposed to do with rest cycles. And that's the way that biology kind of wrote it up. 
Uh, and as long as you're not going to eat, I mean, you are resting one organ system, but you're also putting work on the other organs of detoxification. So you just have to, you have to pay credence to that's what you're doing or else it works real well at the start. And then you realize, like I said, down the road that you really donated that, that was a heavy tax and you donated a lot of great things. And the reason why we get increased growth hormone and increased stem cells is because it's a stress on the body. Um, and that's an application or it's a reaction to that stress on the body, but it wasn't supposed to be replicated that often. You know, we're supposed to go into our cave, have fast and your body said, great, now it's time to recycle and I'll increase some growth hormone because we're going to utilize some things we never had and we better prepare and we better increase some stress hormone and we better go ahead and do these things and regenerate. Um, but there was very few times that that was done electively. You know, usually as we always go back to this paleo and it's hard to find like a guy that was just watching a bunch of deer cross the road and be like, ah, I think I'm just going to rest for about seven days here and not eat. So when you did do that, that was a cue for your body to do these other things. And it was just meant to be done in a restful state. So it's, it's, it's North America is kind of funny because we're just like, if it looks good on paper and it looks aggressive, then we'll just put it into play. And again, if you don't get assessments and you don't know hormonally what you're going into that intermittent fasting with, um, you can be pretty shocked at the results that you end up with. Yeah, 100% agree. This podcast is brought to you by Fat Fudge. If you've never tried it, this is essentially coffee meets fudge meets energy bomb, and it's delicious. Invented by my friend Mary Shinuda, this on-the-go food is nutrient-dense and delicious. I often travel with a few of these in my suitcase for a quick breakfast or a meal if there aren't good food options whenever I'm traveling. Wellness Mama listeners can get a discount 20% off with the code WellnessMama, all one word, WellnessMama at wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash fat fudge. That's P-H-A-T dash F-U-D-G-E. So fat dash fudge. This podcast is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. My kitchen is always stocked with their coffee mushroom blends, their matcha mix, and their straight mushroom drinks. Four Sigmatic has figured out how to get the benefits of mushrooms like chaga, lion's mane, cordyceps, and reishi into delicious instant drinks. My current favorite is their their adaptogen coffee blend that has Tulsi and astragalus, but I love all of their products. They have options with or without caffeine, so if you're not a caffeine person, you can find products that you'll love. Um, And I find that even their coffee blends that do contain caffeine have less than a normal cup of coffee, but don't let this fool you. I have found I get so much more focus and mental clarity from these mushroom blends than I do from regular coffee and without the jitters. The addition of the mushrooms, which are considered nootropics, meaning that they are good for the brain, makes these superfood blends more effective and much healthier than just regular old coffee. I love them with a dash of macadamia milk personally. I also love that many of their drink mixes are instant and packaged into individual servings, so they're perfect for travel or on the go. If you're listening to this, then you can get a special offer just for listeners of this podcast by going to wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash f-o-u-r dash s-i-g-m-a-t-i-c that's wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash four dash sigmatic um and another area i'd love to touch on with you 
Um, so I've mentioned that a pretty large segment of the listening audience has some form of chronic disease or autoimmune disease, and that's why they're interested in health and finding health answers. But I know based on our age demographics, and I'm speaking for myself too, that aging is top of mind for a lot of women. And so I'm curious if there are ways that we can use some of these principles of biological medicine to affect aging, not just on the visual level and how we look, but also on a cellular level, because we now know, I think with telomeres and a lot of different tests, that's something we can actually somewhat track. But I'd love to hear your take on that, because I know that can be a little bit controversial. And I'm curious what you, uh, what advice you would give to slow aging in a gentle, natural, biological way. So, I mean, the first thing we want to look at again is if you could just, if we, we took my pro athletes, for example, who, who aren't the most healthy specimens by the time you break down biochemistry, but we said if we took pro athletes or we took people that actually were optimal, optimal performers and we looked at some of their biochemistry, we'd see that normally we're in the upper 70th percentile on things like vitamins and things like hormones. And we're on a lower percentile as far as things with toxicity. So those are the two areas that we, we're just looking for cell aging. You know, how much work does a cell have to do and what environment does it have to do it in? And we know that DNA has a, a remarkable capacity to live a very long period of time with replication as long as it doesn't have to compete with anything. So if we have lots of nice anabolic youthful hormones coming in, and we don't have to deal with some of these other byproducts of having to do well out the processes going out. We end up with doing really well for a really long period of time. So as you get rid of the waste and you keep hormones high, which is an interesting thing to do these days. I mean, everybody has this controversial thing with, well, should we do hormones and, or shouldn't we do hormones? And, and as long as your hormones are below the 50th percentile and, for example, someone your age has hormones of a 50-year-old or 40-year-old, um, it's really hard to perform at the level that you want to for an increasingly long period of time. And so it's all about the environment that the cell is. If you have hormones, and I'm telling you, we look at infertility, for example, these days, and we say sperm counts in males are greatly reduced um, from where they were at 50 years ago. And that's an aging of the population, not a chronological aging of the population, but a biological aging of the population saying, Humans just can't seem to, to produce what they should, and they can't seem to go as long as they should without having something that breaks them down like a car. And so when you're looking at that, you're looking at micronutrient levels, looking at vitamin levels, looking at antioxidant levels, and like you said with technology, now we can cheat. And we can say, hey, if I can't you know, produce vitamin C or if I can't absorb vitamin C, that's where supplementation comes in. And I put all my markers at in the top 70th percentile. And I promise you, when you do that to anybody, they're going to perform. And they're going to be a lot less um, adapt to, we'll say, breaking down or aging or oxidation um, or degeneration. We just know that when we do that in physiology, that if we make everything really good and we put it at the top end and everything can rep repair really fast, Plus, we get rid of some of the stuff in the connective tissue that may be competing, or we get rid of lymphatic stagnation so we can get oxygen and electrons to the cells and waste products away. It works every single time. And we get a lot more longevity, just like out of a car, if you take the car in and you make sure all the parts are kind of new and you change the oil and you put good gasoline in, it runs a long time and it runs pretty fast. So human physiology hasn't been any different for a long period of time. We just have the ability to look at it now and say, if we have the mineral level in our food that was 
20% of what it used to be 100 years ago, organic or not. Um, and we can't exactly go back and ask a farmer to rest their fields these days because commercially, I mean, that would be that would be suicide for them. So we just have to say that's where the supplements and some of that other world comes in. Find out what you were low in. Go ahead and make that in the top 70th percentile where it should be. Look at all of your hormones because that's what you're doing this aging game with. Find out which ones are low and either find a way to make them better by taking them or remove the barriers that are preventing them from being where they should be. And the net result will always be a magical thing, which ends up being the people look younger, they move differently, they think differently, and they act differently. I love that. And a question I love to ask toward the end, especially um, with someone with a vast knowledge like you, um, obviously those of us with children, especially those of us with health conditions who have children, having gone through them ourselves and any mother especially doesn't want their child to ever have to go through these things as well. So I love to ask if there are any specific things that you suggest regularly to kind of keep kids healthy as they grow and to avoid some of these problems, Um, especially if there are any strategies that women and moms can take at home, even if they don't have access to your clinic locations, although we want to talk about that in a minute too. Um, But just things that are kind of more, um, while children are building their foundation for life like that, things that we can do to support. And I know my list includes things like getting enough daily sunshine and spending time outdoors and eating seasonal food. But I'd love to hear any suggestions you have as well. So I just have, I have a two month old at home, which is always fun. And the interesting thing was we, you know, I take it from preconception all the way to pregnancy. Because a lot of times with pregnancy, we just say, well, we can't do anything. But when it's your own family, you can do whatever you want. Um, So I really take an active role in saying this is as much when before pregnancy is a really important time for those prospective mothers out there to get those nutrient levels to the point that they need to be at. And then during pregnancy, like you said, all this stuff, but then once a baby for this first seven years, they develop personalities and the adrenals are developing in the first year and the thyroid develops up to year three. And then we got reproductive hormones develop after that. And it's, um, it's vitally important that we just go ahead. Organic food is just a necessary thing for raising little people um, because they bioaccumulate things so much more than adults do. And they've got so much bigger of a growth cycle or we have, they have so much more action um, than we have. So I always like to supplement minerals in little kids. I always like to supplement human um, pro- probiotics because probiotics are transient and Little ones don't really have cellular immune systems developed, again, until about seven, even though at two it kind of gets formed. So probiotics, good, balanced, essential fatty acids and minerals. And the rest of it is organic food, a lot of fun and a lot of love. And you can get a lot of things done with that. Kids don't need a lot. I used to volunteer at a street kids clinic. Um, and I was always like, you're looking back and you're just you're you're watching some of these uh, stories come in and and I'm seeing some of the diets that the moms are eating. I'm like, there's no way that kid. And then they bring that kid back and I'd hold that kid and it looked a lot like the baby I just had. The trouble is, chronic disease sets in after that because what you're developing with, you're kind of doomed to live off of for the rest of your life. Now, genetics and everything can change, um, but like I said, minerals because you can't get enough in food and kids need those to grow. Um, probiotics, which are human strains just sit in there a little bit better for kids. Uh, and a lot of the action is happening in things called Peyer's patches, which is in the small intestine. So anything that you can do to encourage that development of that immune system, you greatly reduce the chances of chronic disease. And then we always get into toxicity with vaccinations and stuff like that, which I mean, my, 
everybody asks me that question and I just, I'd say, that's a loaded question and you always kind of wait till you have things in medicine. Wait, wait to get into medicine. You'll, you'll have your chances to get into medicine when they fall out of trees and stuff like that. Um, but in my opinion, build things first and then use medicine so you get the best responses off medicine later. So there's nothing better. I, there's nothing I enjoyed more than my pediatric. There's nothing I enjoy more than my pediatric patients um, because they just heal so much faster than us old fogies. And they're just, they're, they're quick to absorb things. So you get great benefits in a very short period of time. Agreed. Kids are amazing. And I'd love to hear as we finish up with your um, vast experience and all of your research history, um, what do you see as the future of medicine? Because you've already seen a lot of changes in during the time that you've practiced. But I'm really curious what you see and hope for the future. Now, what I'd like to see, here's where medicine, so I have a lot of doctors as patients, which is always funny, um, because we always sit around, I used to sit on health boards. And medicine's in a very terrible spot right now where we uh, we don't really pay doctors enough for them to spend time or get extra training. So they'll say to me in the consult, they'll be like, well, I'd love to do all this stuff, but I only get paid for five minutes. It's like, I don't, I can't blame you. It doesn't, you're not getting paid to learn. I know that sounds like a cop-out, but when you still have to keep your lights on, you know, medicine's in a weird space where we're kind of running medicine with insurance companies and the insurance companies um, don't necessarily pay you to get better. They just pay you to see people. And then the pharmaceutical companies, which we have to, because like you said, if you get over that rollover accident on uh, in your car, you have to have somebody to pay for that. So we need we need all these little facets, which everybody looks as the devil in one turn, but they all play a, they play a role in the ecosystem of medicine. Um, where medicine should be going in the next little bit, which we're, we're, where I'd love to see it go, is a lot less out of biochemistry and a lot more into physics. I mean, if we would have said, if you would have told me 20 years ago that I'd still be talking about cortisone and antidepressants, um, I would be depressed myself. We really have, if we look at iPhones and we say, what was available 15 years ago, and I'm still popping a Tylenol, um, we've got this biochemistry model, which we just say we have to sell this amount of biochemistry because we have to keep the medical system in play. And if we introduce this technology or these assessments or this physics, it would limit the ability for us to make money off biochemistry. And I understand that. I understand the business of it. Um, but I'd sure like to see a lot more of technology being implemented where we say, why are we using something that's sloppy, has some effects, but also has side effects? Why don't we just use this technology that doesn't have side effects? We do it in assessments all the time. We use MRIs. You know, we're using all these other, you know, guided ultrasounds. We're doing all this wonderful thing in diagnostics. Why are we just doing all this antiquated? Why are we doing all this ancient stuff in treatment? And it's because we get paid monthly to do treatment. It's like, why are we still kind of doing chemotherapy? I mean, it's got like 2% effective and it's, it's, it's not a great therapy. It has... It's, it's not great, but we generate some money off of it, and that pays for raising you know, a 1.5-pound baby, which is a, mir a miracle. Back when I started 20 years ago, I mean, that neonatal care and, you know, we'll say surgery or orthopedics, those have, those have done miraculous things in the last. If you have a gripe about allopathic medicine, you should go ahead and spend some time in those wards because you see miracles happen every single day. Unfortunately, when we're talking about health or chronic disease, we don't really see any advances in it because we're not willing to say, I'm going to give up this 
we'll say biochemical model and, and supplementation is nutrition. You know, nutritional supplements fall into that play too. You go to Europe and everything's behind the counter. So you can't go there to Whole Foods, for example, and get loads and loads of nutritional supplementation and practice on yourself. You have to go to a pharmacy so it's at least controlled. And medicine with the implementation of Dr. Google and the fact that things that we're doing right now, there's a lot more exposure. And I think that's great because it pushes the envelope on what people are exposed to and what they learn. Uh, doctors, unfortunately, we've kind of taken that ability for them to learn right out because we just kind of grind them down with 50 patients a day. But you know who learns really well? The person that has a condition. And they start learning about anatomy and physiology, which is kind of why I made you know, my new website is drdrobot.com, and it's, it's all question and answers. That's all I encourage because they don't have a lot of time to do presentations. And so you just go there, you go to the Facebook page, and you just ask questions because that's one of my hobbies is just answering questions. And we have that in medicine where we're saying we're not getting a lot of the questions and the answers, so people are starting to go to technology to find some solutions, but then technology, I hope, comes into treatment because I think we'll see a lot of things. I hope by the time my little – kids are my age, which is 43, I hope that we do things a lot differently by using physics instead of just pharmacology and biochemistry. I 100% agree with you on that. And I think you're so right. I hope as well that the technological advances and the rise of Dr. Google, as you say, will lead to a more balanced approach in the future. Because I joke, I say it jokingly, but I'm actually not joking that never doubt that a concerned mom with a child with a health problem can do better research than the FBI. And it's true. If um, you or someone you love has a health condition, you have a much, a uh, very strong motivation to learn about that and to, to experience any potential options that would help you. So I think that's going to be hopefully a really good thing that we'll see in the future of medicine. And I also 100% echo your points about there are so many strengths of allopathic medicine. Um, I had placenta preview with my third, ended up with an emergency C-section and lost a ton of blood. And he and I are both alive today thanks to allopathic medicine. I certainly don't discount it. And I think that the future, like you, I hope the future is um, a very good combination of the two and working together and using the strengths of both. So I think you said it so well. And I want you to wrap up by saying where people can find your clinics and also your website. Mention it one more time. Yeah. So the new website is drdrobot.com. You can go there and it's, it's all Facebook based. So Facebook live, you, you ask questions, I'll give you answers. And then the clinics that we have right now, one in our big one in Scottsdale, um, that's the American Center for Biological Medicine. And then there's another American Center for Biological Medicine and Dentistry going up in Providence, Rhode Island. That'll probably be open in September. So that'll be uh, 15,000 square feet of biological butt kicking. Plus, we have the biological dentistry. And then I also have a project going on in, um, in a community called Albany in the Bahamas where we'll also be doing some biological treatment. So I also have my Canadian clinic up in Calgary, Alberta. So you, uh, you can find me everywhere and nowhere at the same time, but if you go on that website um, and start asking questions, I'd love to start giving the answers. So that's pretty much, uh, that, that'll fill me up for the next 45 years probably. There you go. And all those links for anyone listening will be in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm. If you're driving, please don't try to write them down while you're driving. Those will be there for you to find uh, when you're in a safe place. But thank you so much for your time and being here. You are a wealth of knowledge. This was such a fun conversation, and I know it really helped a lot of people. So thank you. No problem, Katie. And thanks to all of you for listening. And I hope to hear you next time on the Healthy Moms Podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? 
Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.